morning and welcome to another episode of Rising. We have a fantastic show planned for you today. And Bacha Ungar Sargan is co-hosting the show. It's wonderful to see you, Bacha. Thank you. It's so great to be here with you, Robbie. What are we talking about today? Well, a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon was shot down by the U.S. military over the coast of South Carolina over the weekend. Pentagon officials claimed the balloon had been drifting over the continental United States for a week before being taken down over the Atlantic Ocean. Chinese officials have slammed the debacle as a, quote, unnecessary attack on a civilian unmanned airship by force, noting that Beijing reserves the right to make further responses that are, quote, necessary. Let's hear what President Biden had to say on Saturday. Briefed on the balloon, I ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down on Wednesday as soon as possible. They decided without doing damage to anyone on, on the ground. They decided that the best time to do that was as it got over water outside within our within 12 mile limit it successfully took it down and i want to compliment our aviators who did it and we'll have more to report on this uh, a little later thank you the same president, what did you say about china what's your message to china you were saying the recommendation from your was from your national security. i told them to shoot it down on wednesday on wednesday but the recommendation they from said them. to me let's wait till the safest place to do it what does this mean for china relations with china all right, short and sweet. Joining us now to weigh in on what's next in the fallout from this incident is senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Welcome, Lieutenant Colonel, and thank you for your service. Thank um, you for having me. Great. We're so happy to have you. Um, let's start with what was your initial response to the news of the Chinese balloon? And has anything that has happened or emerged since then changed those initial views? You know, honestly, my initial view is pretty much the same as where it still is. I think this was a big overreaction. I, I don't think that we have, mm. I think we made too big of a deal about it. And uh, as the Washington Post is reporting this morning, for example, th this was uh, apparently happened three times uh, at, at various links during the Trump administration and once earlier in the Biden administration. And look, the bottom line is we spy on China 24-7. They spy on us. I mean, that's what nations do. They try to get intelligence uh, and, and certainly China has a lot better capacities to do it than this balloon. Uh, I, I actually think that this uh, was probably intended to be some sort of a message from China. I think that it badly backfired because it was coming about, you know, just literally hours before Blinken was supposed to have gone to China for his first meeting with his uh, Chinese counterpart. And then he canceled that. And, and the fact that this balloon hovered over uh, Billings, Montana, over our uh, strategic air base there and over some of our nuclear strategic missile silos. I, I think that they're trying to send some sort of a message. It's unclear what they thought they were going to communicate, uh, but I think it backfired pretty badly. Uh, the thing that I worry about, though, is that Blinken canceled the trip. And look, there's some bigger issues that need to be resolved between China and the United States, and I hope he puts that back on the agenda pretty quick. What information could this balloon have possibly been gathering? Obviously, they knew the locations of, you know, what you just spelled out already, right? The balloon did, didn't happen across those locations. So what, what, you know, what exactly are they, would they be getting that we should be concerned about? 
Yeah, they, they uh, the, that's one of the things we're hoping to find out if they can get that debris out of the water after they shot it down. And I, I really do hope that that could actually turn out to be a kind of a boon for us in, in intelligence capacity. Uh, but I mean, you can count on the fact that it's uh, it probably was trying to gather signals intelligence. It was uh, almost certainly uh, taking photographs, videos, etc., of of those locations that were underneath it. I mean, that's pretty standard uh, equipment for these kinds of devices. Uh, but look, as I pointed out, it, it's not as good as their low Earth orbit satellites, which can have crystal clear vision down on the uh, on the uh, the uh, U.S. territory there. And uh, so that's why, again, I say I, I think that this is a, a little bit of an overreaction because it's not that big a deal. Our security was never at risk because of this. Hmm. And they had to know. So, so would they have known that we were going to detect it? I mean, it, it seemed obvious given the trajectory of this balloon, we were going to notice it. Uh, people noticed it from the ground, right? So, so they had right. to know that doing this, we were going to see it. We were going to be upset. So everything that kind of happened was sort of predictable from their standpoint, but they did it anyway, I, which I guess speaks to what you're saying is that it was some kind of message. Yeah, I mean, it, it really has to be because, I mean, obviously something that's, you know, basically just wafting over the country that's as big as three school buses is not going to skip our, our attention. And we tracked it the whole way. Uh, but that's why I suggested it was a kind of a ham-fisted effort. Uh, and I think they're very embarrassed by it. I mean, you, you look at their response, and it's been pretty tame compared to what China has done on other issues. And I think they're embarrassed about this, and they just want to put it behind them and move on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of wonder at you saying, you know, with all due respect and with a lot of humility at you saying that this is not a big deal. Um, I, I think the fact that I, I totally agree with you, it seems that this was intentional. It was sort of designed to be caught. You can see that in their response, which, as you know, has been sort of conciliatory um, and also the brazen, but the, the brazenness of it, to me, that doesn't make me feel better. That makes me feel a lot worse, like it was some sort of power move to suggest, you know, we're not a afraid of letting you know that we're doing it's not just that we're spying on you that everybody knows but that we're willing to do it to get caught spying on you you know that suggests to me a, a level of brazenness that seems to me to 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 be a sort of escalation a, a, something new no what what am i missing here yeah well if that was their intent then, then it was a really bad effort because look uh -huh. we're powerful and and this this stuff is it, it's a little balloon I mean, you know, the, the skit on Saturday Night Live, I thought, really captured the real seriousness of this, uh, that it's not very much. And I think it, it just embarrassed Beijing because we were never at threat, never at risk. Uh, and, and we are the bigger, stronger player here. And, and if they thought this was going to, uh, you know, make us embarrassed or, or if it was going to make us cow or something, it was a bad miscalculation because it's not. And, and I think that this has showed that, that our power remains unchecked and unba uh, uh, unquestioned. And this is coming, obviously, at a time of, you know, increasing, I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, in, some increasing tensions. Uh, obviously, we had, you know, Nancy Pelosi's uh, visit from some months back, in a, sparking a discussion of, you know, what would exactly would the U.S. do, our, you know, our stated policy to, to defend Taiwan, but that policy kind of being, I think, just designed to prevent China from doing anything. If they were to actually do something, you know, would we intervene and then potentially cause, you know, a massive 
potentially nuclear confrontation. Uh, so obviously things between America and China are, are far from ideal right now, and we're upset with China on a number of fronts, economic fronts, uh, et cetera, we, you know, their treatment of the Uyghurs, uh, what the, the demands they make of tech companies and entertainment companies that do business in China, engage in self-censorship. It just seems like it's on a very bad uh, trajectory. You know, what, what needs to be done from a diplomatic standpoint to move past this and then also move us to a position where we're not, you know, we're not on a path to a confrontation like what we're having with Russia over Ukraine. Yeah, Robbie, you hit it square on the head. That that is my concern. That this issue by itself with the balloon is relatively minor, but there are some other issues on the table that are not minor. And and uh, aside from that good list you just put down there, you can also add to it that on the military front, there seems to be a ratcheting up of tensions in both directions, which I think is why, you know, Blinken needed to go there so that we could address some of this and, and cool some of these tensions. I mean, in just the last, uh, you know, number of days, you have uh, the United States has uh, made a deal for to use four additional bases in the Philippines. We have opened uh, a marine base in Guam for the first time in 70 years in that area. We're expanding our military bases in a capacity in, in Japan. China on the other side is also ramping up its military capacity. It's using more ships to go close to Taiwan. It's certainly overflying with more fighter jets, sending now drones into some of the air, into the airspace there, one of our, which was, I believe, shut down not long ago. So these things keep looking like it's sort of a ratcheting up of tensions. And before we stumble into some kind of war, which would be catastrophic for American interests, we need to get this under control. And that's why diplomacy at the highest levels is a requirement. Mm. Yeah, I, I honestly, I agree with you. I think the, the bigger threat that China poses to America is much more on the domestic front in terms of the economy, in terms of jobs, which is something that we have complete control over in terms of TikTok, right, in terms of the influence that that is having over our young people. I mean, that seems to me to be sort of where the real threat is, not the military front. But when they're doing things like this, I mean, uh, to me, this is a perfect opportunity to say, look, we don't like that you did this and we don't like these other things. Let's clarify what this relationship is really about. Do, do you think that President Biden um, has the you know the wherewithal to to take the right steps and what should those steps be well i certainly hope he does and and i thought sending blinken over there was a a, a long delayed step that should have been taken which is you know why i'm so adamant that it was a mistake to have canceled that it needs to be redone quickly because as you're pointing out there's lots of issues not on the military front and military is not going to solve any of those issues you know sending a bunch of uh of ships through the the straits and the freedom of navigations and threatening rhetoric, et cetera, that's not going to stop any of those issues that you talked about, which are, do need to be addressed in many cases. Uh, and you know what? We have to outcompete China. We've got to push back on these areas in the right environment, which is the economic environment, which is the di diplomatic environment. And we need to be more engaged and not saying, hey, we're not going to talk to you unless everything's perfect, because that doesn't help us out. We've got to try to solve these things. And that also includes talking to all of our Asian neighbors and all on, and you know and our other friends and allies in the area because it's not just a, a bilateral issue a lot of these things can be solved by just out competing China and going you know and beating them at their own game and I like that path a lot better hmm. lieutenant colonel thank you so much for joining us today we appreciate it so much always my pleasure thanks next up we'll tell you what's on our radars stick around
Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, here's a question. Is the mainstream media finally ready to start scrutinizing Hunter Biden's scandals? Over the past few days, Hunter's aggressive new legal strategy has finally earned him some attention outside conservative media. That strategy involves demanding criminal probes and threatening defamation lawsuits against people like Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, and even Fox News' Tucker Carlson. Indeed, Tucker is being targeted for merely, merely talking about the infamous New York Post laptop story. Hunter Biden is essentially trying to silence criticism. So here's another question. Isn't that an implicit threat to freedom of the press? And shouldn't the mainstream media be treating it as such? I have to think that if Donald Trump's children threatened to sue media institutions for scrutinizing their financial dealings, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, they'd all strongly condemn it. But Hunter Biden's efforts are mainly being treated as some kind of sideshow, harmless, ineffective even. Now, I raised this point during in an interview on Fox News over the weekend. Let's watch. Nobody likes their press coverage, especially when they're public figures. Donald Trump didn't like his press coverage. and you know, used to, like, try to change it. I don't know if he ever threatened lawsuits or not. I think he did, actually. Well, he sued but, a few people. Yeah, he sued a few people. In fact, he just sued Bob Woodward for $49 yeah, million yeah. Dollars yeah. over those so audio that, tapes. Is that, a chilling, audio is that tapes. a chilling, yeah, is that yeah. a chilling effect on free speech? I think Donald Trump is a much bigger, more powerful figure than Hunter Biden. I, I think it is, but it's been covered in the mainstream is the difference, whereas, whereas where will be the mainstream denunciation of what, the Biden family, what Hunter Biden is doing here against freedom of the press. That's the difference. So you feel like uh, much of the media are, uh, I mean, it's interesting. Hunter Biden wants this out, but it's been very little on it on MSNBC, even though he wants this out. So are you feeling like um, there's still a sort of, of a protective gloss where many in the press say, well, you know, he's had a lot of problems. He's a drug addict. He's tried to kick it. Yeah, he shouldn't have been, you know, trying to get uh, contracts with the Chinese and in Ukraine when he has no experience in those areas. You don't think this has changed the equation that much? I think they mostly don't want to cover it because they're embarrassed by the fact that their initial reaction, so many of the people in progressive and mainstream media, was to say that this is a Russian I interference yeah, thing, suggesting everywhere. maybe that the laptop didn't exist. And then I'm thinking, <laughs> so then the repairman, is he an actor? Is it what? It never made any sense to think that the, the laptop itself, you, like you could think right. the implications weren't important, but that that was planted by Russia. It never made any sense, and they should be embarrassed. Well, Mar I think they the, are embarrassed. Uh, they are embarrassed. The mainstream media doesn't want to criticize Hunter Biden because mainstream operators would need to look inward at themselves, at their own culpability for promoting the idea that the laptop was part of a Russian influence campaign. The idea that everything having to do with Trump and the right ties back to villainous Russian behavior has now been repeatedly debunked, of course. Many alternative and independent media sources suspected it was false from the start, and their suspicions have been bolstered by numerous reports and studies that have chipped away at the dominant narrative. We now know for sure that the so-called Russian influence campaign on social media was minuscule and had practically no reach. In fact, we recently learned that even content moderators at Twitter became aware that the entire idea of influential Russian bots was a hoax. But anti-Russia fervor was so extreme that they didn't dare speak up about it. One individual who has definitely caught on is former New York Times reporter Jeff Gerth. 
Girth published a lengthy report for the Columbia Journalism Review in which he examines the coverage of Russiagate from his former paper. Girth writes that, quote, news outlets and watchdogs haven't been forthright in examining their own Trump-Russia coverage, which includes serious flaws. Now, Girth reminds readers that New York Times columnist Paul Krugman called Trump a Siberian candidate. The Atlantic's editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, said Trump was a de facto agent of Putin, and those comments were just in reaction to Trump slightly tweaking his platform's approach to Ukraine. The platform still called for sanctions on Russia and assistance to Ukraine, just not specifically arms, which was consistent with what the uh, Obama administration had advocated anyway. That was enough for the mainstream media to conclude that Trump was a Manchurian candidate. Jeff Gerth also points out for the Columbia Journalism Review that the public's opinion of the media is at an all-time low. Though trust in media has become extremely partisan, with 70% of Democrats trusting the media still, but just 14% of Republicans feeling that way. As my colleague at Reason Magazine, J.D. Tuchile, points out, quote, if more of the journalists pursuing the Russiagate story had been scrupulous about getting the facts right, they might have noticed that a story that many wanted to be true was remarkably thin and ultimately inaccurate. Failing to perform due diligence did the media no favors when the facts finally emerged and further eroded public trust. And I encourage everyone to go read that very long uh, piece for the Columbia Journalism Review uh, about uh, Russiagate and holding the media accountable, which I think continues to be um, uh, so important. Bacha, this is my view on why the media doesn't necessarily want to cover um, Hunter Biden or talk about it, because it would mean looking at their own mistakes with, uh, with the entire Russia collusion narrative, but then specifically as well with the New York Post story, in which they all said this was planted by Russia, pay it no mind. And, and th that's such a, that was a, kind of a ludicrous thing, honestly, to even think at the time, but they clung to it for years in some cases. Yeah, I, I, I've recently been feeling like what I want is a word to describe what it feels like when publications that smeared me as, you know, racist or a Putin stooge or this or that for saying something, you know, a year later, two years later, five years later, when they come around to that view, like, what do I get for having been smeared for having been right about that in the first place, right? Um, and I, I think it's so amazing because, of course, the Columbia Journalism Review was at the forefront of woke media for so long, policing narratives around gender and race, around Trump, around Trump's voters, part of that chorus that really created the inability of so many journalists to, to speak the truth because they knew that it would be a career ending move. Um, so it's, of course, I'm glad to see it now, you know, but it's, but at the same time, you know, like, what about the last five years, right? Like, where is the, where, where do we go from here? Um, but yeah, of course, and of course, you know, from my point of view, I mean, I wrote a whole book about this. There's a huge class component to this, right? The mainstream leftist media is made up of elites from, you know, very highly over-credentialed, highly educated elites who saw in Trump, you know, the, mm -hmm. rot, the rising up of the unwashed masses, right, against their economic interests. And so they sort of had to uh, enforce this narrative that he was, you know, could never have won on his own merits, because that would mean that, you know, the, wor the world that they had created, f that, you know, for their economic interests was exactly that, was not some sort of morally superior
material world. It was just one that served their interests. Um, so I, I'm glad to see this coming out. And you, I, I do have to say, um, I totally agree that if Trump's kids were behaving the way Hunter Biden is right now, they, it would be front page news for every publication. At the same time, I do think it's very clear that Joe Biden is no longer taking advice from Hunter Biden. And so the idea that it represents a sort of First Amendment threat, it's sort of like, I mean, come on, like, you know, nobody takes this mm -hmm. crack addict seriously. But at the same time, the, the hypocrisy is real, right? So it's a little bit complicated. Um, but I'm, I'm so glad that you covered this. A really great, great radar, Robbie. Thank you. And it's just, I think it's just important to remember how, I, I mean, I'm even surprised when I look back at the news coverage from that time period of just how hysterical it was about you know, every single day there was some new thing to connect Trump to Russia, et cetera. And, you know, with, with a baseline of, yes, did, did Putin want to damage Hillary Clinton? Yes. Did they, you know, make some really ham-handed, uh, ham some really incompetent moves on social media? Yes. Was pa Paul Manafort corrupt? Yes. That's, that was all true. But from that, they spun this just totally tall tale uh, based in based in non-truths, non-truth things that are not accurate, and that that media coverage just like still exists. It's just it's out there. It's you know in our it's it's flashback territory, and there's been so little accounting for it. Uh, it's really it's really incredible. But uh, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. What's on your radar, Bacha? cover on here a lot is the giant face plant the scientific community has done over the course of the pandemic. We all know now about the epic flip-flops of those who anointed themselves representatives of the science, TM, how they pushed lockdowns, then the vaccines, then vaccine mandates, legislating their own preferences regardless of the consent of the governed. From the safety of their own homes, which skyrocketed in value, leftist elites in medical, political, journalistic, and policy fields imposed what worked for them. Indeed, what made them even richer on the millions of working class Americans whose labor they relied on to survive. One in five small businesses closed down while Fortune 500 companies saw record sales. Private school children soared astronomically ahead of their public school counterparts who were relegated to Zoom learning by the laptop classes regime, even those with no access to a computer. The pandemic was not just responsible for the deaths of millions of Americans, it turns out. It was also the largest transfer of wealth from the middle and working classes to the credentialed elite and billionaire classes, who cast anyone who opposed lockdowns as moral perverts while they watched their own bank accounts swell. Then, when it came time to end the lockdowns, they demanded that you take the vaccine to protect them while you served them so they could feel comfortable being waited on by you in restaurants and hospitals. From the start, the pandemic pitted the interests of middle and working class Americans against those of the elites. A largely white collar knowledge industry email cast was easily able to start working from home. But rather than recognize the economic privilege of getting to stay home making banana bread and buying Peloton bikes, the pajama class dressed this privilege up as virtue, which correlated strongly with the lingering terror around getting COVID. It was a terror that working class Americans, Amazon delivery drivers, grocery store stalkers, truckers, police officers simply could not afford. They had to continue to work throughout the worst of the pandemic, delivering food and safety to members of the liberal elite ensconced in their homes, denouncing anyone who opposed the draconian lockdown measures of blue states as a grandma killer. 
In other words, while relying on the labor of the working class, an over-credentialed elite demanded that the gap between the unwashed, exposed masses and the safely protected rich grow even wider. They demanded endless lockdowns that didn't slow the spread of COVID, though they did grow the gap separating the elite's children from the black and Hispanic kids whose schools were forced to close over and over by the teachers union. As lockdowns reduced millions of small business owners to poverty and swelled the stocks of big box megastore stocks, the elites brayed for more. Their boredom shopping sprees gave Amazon record profits while middle class business owners uh, with their savings gone and their businesses dead committed suicide. And throughout, liberal elites somehow convinced themselves that they were the good guys, the ones who cared about the collective, as opposed to those evil individualists who refused to see their life savings go up in smoke without complaint, or who were worried about what a brand new vaccine might do to their teenage sons. How did they allow themselves such blindness? A new Newsweek op-ed explains what this looked like from the inside. In a piece titled, It's Time for the Scientific Community to Admit We Were Wrong About COVID and It Cost Lives, Kevin Bass, an MD-PhD student at a medical school in Texas, explains how the scientific community got COVID so wrong and how it cost lives. Quote, as a medical student and researcher, I staunchly supported the efforts of the public health authorities when it came to COVID. I believe that the authorities responded to the largest public health crisis of our lives with compassion, diligence, and scientific expertise. I was with them when they called for lockdowns, vaccines, and boosters. I was wrong, writes Kevin. We in the scientific community were wrong, and it cost lives. Quote, I can see now that the scientific community from the CDC to the WHO, to the FDA and their representatives repeatedly overstated the evidence and misled the public about its own views and policies, including on natural versus artificial immunity, school closures and disease transmission, aerosol spread, mask mandates and vaccine effectiveness and safety, especially among the young, writes Kevin. All of these were scientific mistakes at the time, not in hindsight. Amazingly, some of these obfuscations continue to the present day. Kevin goes on. What we did not properly appreciate is that preferences determine how scientific expertise is used and that our preferences might be, indeed our preferences were, very different from many of the people that we serve. We created policy based on our preferences, then justified it using data. And then we portrayed those opposing our efforts as misguided, ignorant, selfish, and evil. Kevin goes on, we made science a team sport, and in so doing, we made it no longer science. It became us versus them, and they responded the only way anyone might expect them to, by resisting. Quote, we systematically minimized the downsides of the interventions we imposed, imposed without the input, consent, and recognition of those forced to live with them. In so doing, we violated the autonomy of those who would be most negatively impacted by our policies, the poor, the working class, small business owners, blacks and Latinos, and children. These populations were overlooked because they were made invisible to us by their systematic exclusion from the dominant corporatized media machine that presumed omniscience. Joining us now to discuss his very brave op-ed is Kevin Bass. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Basha. So your piece really went viral, and I'm wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about what made you write it and why you think it resonated so much. When I was sitting here listening to your um, discussion of the piece and the discussion of the pandemic, I was just reminded, um, 
especially by how powerful the way that you put things, uh, I was reminded by the, about the emotional valence that I felt that originally drove me to write the piece. Um, when I first started writing about this on social media, I was mostly in a state of basically regret and sadness about what I had participated in for uh, the last several years. Um, and listening to you, once again, really brought me back to that place. Um, and I just wanted to tell everybody and tell anybody who, who wanted to, to hear it that uh, I was sorry because I uh, indeed am uh, extremely sorry and saddened by the way that things went during the pandemic. Why do you think that's such a rare position? I mean, I think one of the reasons the piece went so viral was because it's very rare to hear somebody say that. And yet it's such an obvious point. I think between the two of us, it's, it seems such a clear and obvious point. Why do you think it's so rare? I think after several years of uh, defending the establishment policies, and especially, I think, within our social circles within the medical community, scientific community, in public health communities, and as well in the media, I think um, we have just constantly reaffirmed and reinforced our beliefs amongst each other to such an extent that it's almost impossible for us to see otherwise. Um, amongst, each, amongst ourselves, we have basically, I mean, we haven't basically, we have demonized our opponents. Anybody who has a different point of view, uh, we we tend to think of them as, as broken or bad people, as having nefarious motives, as, as wanting to make money, and um, having such a negative opinion about anybody who criticizes our beliefs makes it impossible for us to see, uh, well, if I decided to change my beliefs to become, say, for example, one of them, it makes it impossible for us to contemplate uh, the possibility that we could do such a thing. We don't want to be one of those people. We want to be one of the good guys. And so since we created this dichotomy of good and bad guys, it's just almost impossible for us to see outside of that and then make that transition. It requires really deconstructing and taking apart those beliefs that we've had ingrained in us and that we've been ingraining in each other to allow us to be able to then switch our positions. And I think this is one of the main reasons why almost nobody uh, seems to be able to do this. And then many people who are even reading my piece are so resistant to the things I'm saying. In fact, many of my friends think that, uh, that I've somehow lost it and, and I don't, um, uh, because now I'm on the other side and now I'm, uh, you know, that's the only way I could possibly be on the other side is if I've, I've lost it for some reason. It's, yeah. it's actually very um, sad. Yeah, it, it speaks to the fact that dissent, like daring to disagree and, and to dissent is now, with respect to the COVID debate, is a, is a conservative or contrarian position. Uh, the, the media, for example, it treats you like you're crazy, you're spreading misinformation if you have questions, if you disagree. The, the establishment, Democrats, that whole team is now bought into the idea that, oh yeah, you, you, listen to, you uncritically listen to the experts in, in the relevant field and do whatever they tell you to, regardless of, of whether you think that's correct or whether you have questions or whether you think there are you know, downstream consequences that are outside of their field of expert, like what would happen to the economy, what would happen to schools, that kind of thing there's none that, like that is that is the wrong approach from if you're part of the the, uh, the democrat the team blue tribe it's so weird that it's gotten to be that way 
Yeah, it's unbelievable that we can't um, think for ourselves anymore. We can't question things. We can't criticize things. And we have to have one team or the other team or you're either a, a good or a bad person. Um, democratic discourse and democratic civil discussion requires us to be able to to consider other points of views. And if we can't consider other points of views, then we can no longer really have, um, well, I mean, then we can just dismiss large swaths of the population for their preferences and, and, and think that uh, they're illegitimate. They're, that's no longer a democracy. Uh, quite right, Kevin. Um, thank you again so much for this brave piece and for joining us today. It was so great talking to you. Thank you, Pacha. It was a pleasure. More rising right after this. Dr. Anthony Fauci is making headlines again after he was criticized online for charging up to $100,000 for speaking engagements. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's rapid response director, Christina Peshaw, tweeted a screenshot from the leading motivational speakers agency, which lists the former NIAID director as a motivational and healthcare keynote speaker valued between $50,000 and $100,000 per speaking engagement. Fauci's critics blasted him on Twitter for inflating his self-worth after what many critics deem a pitiful handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Conservative influencer and 2020 Trump campaign staffer Kingsley Cortez tweeted the grift that keeps on grifting with fellow conservative Jennifer Barreto Leva adding the audacity of this man. Now, Fauci is expected to give the 2023 Yale Medical School commencement speech in May. And remember that Fauci was once considered the highest paid employee in the U.S. government, a Freedom of Information Act revealed. In 2019, Fauci raked in $417,000. And the watchdog group opened the books found and shared with Fox Digital that Fauci's net worth expanded from $7.5 million in 2019 to $12.6 million at the end of 2021. So, Robbie, are you charging $50,000 per speaker engagement? Now, you can get me for a discount. If you want Fauci, but that's too, you know, I'll, I'll do it for $45,000 e easily. And, I, and I'm a whole, I'm a full service uh, and entertainer. I'll do, I'll stand on my head, I'll juggle. It's not not just a speech, you know. I'll uh, I'll dress up in uh, in uh, clown clothes or something. Whatever you want, forty five thousand dollars a mere fee. No, look, people are getting upset about this. It, it's a little. I understand why they get upset about it. It seems like a lot of money for a small amount of his time, and you know, I we. I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't agree with a lot of his ideas. Obviously, you and I were able to grill him uh, way back when when he was interviewed on this show, but. At the end of the day, if people, you know, with schools, it's a little different because some schools are, you know, they're partly federally subsidized, and I don't love that. But basically, if a group wants to raise its own money, pay this guy whatever they want to pay him, you know, it's not, you can think it's too much money, but it's really not, you know, your business as much. That's different than when the federal government pays him the highest salary, you know, known to man. That's ultimately taxpayer money. That's, that's a public policy measure. This is like, you know, if Group A wants to give Group B or person B a bunch of money, okay, you know, it's not really, that's just how it is, I guess. It doesn't, it doesn't affect yeah, me it, as much. Does that make it, sense? It's, it's 
is much more reflection on the groups willing to pay this money. I don't mm-hmm. begrudge anybody, you know, setting a price tag on their time if they can get it, you know, yeah. great. But it is very embarrassing that, uh, I mean, anybody who ends up paying $100,000 for that, they should be very embarrassed by that. Um, I agree with you. This is more of like a sort of free market, private exchange, you know, list your worth, whatever you think it is. Um, I, I, I will say, you know, the 400000 for working for the government, I mean, it would be one thing if, if we were getting something <laughs> you know, if that was considered a bargain, right? If there was some, you know, but but failure after failure after failure, like we 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 tried to get him to acknowledge any mistakes, couldn't get him to acknowledge any of those things, and um, you know, the the net worth increase, you know, again, you know, if somebody is doing an amazing job, I don't begrudge them, you know, making good money from that, but. Um, the the whole problem with the pandemic was that it was the largest upward transfer of wealth from the working and middle class to the elite and the billionaire class in American history. And so to see the person who literally coordinated that transfer, perhaps unintentionally, you know, we could give him that credit, um, you know, it, it, it does, it rankles, right? If this is the thing that most bothers you about the pandemic response, it's the thing that really bothers me. It, it, it's there's something about this is very distasteful to have this kind of this kind of t- t- I'm glad we know yeah. it. Um, right. It's it's sort of emblematic of, of a much larger problem. So to me, this is less about him and and more emblematic of a much larger problem that he helped facilitate. I agree. There was just there wasn't going to be any world where once the pandemic's over, once Fauci is done in federal service, he wasn't going to make a ton of money. He can write a book. He can, in addition to the speaking fees, he, you know, he's going to be able to, just because he got such uh, a high profile, so much media attention at the, you know, the end of his career in government service, he, like other people, but him even more so because he was so front and center. And I, I think him being front and center had very negative policy consequences, but the reality was he was always going to be able to monetize that. In fact, I, he, he sort of... Um, hinted it that that was why he was, you know, exiting. He's an older man, but he's he can exit government service now and, and still has, you know, he's, I think he's in his early 80s, but he's, you know, he's still very functional, very with it. Uh, so he has time to do a lot of speaking, write books, et cetera, you know, really, really rake in some money, have a, have a small fortune, you know, to leave to his descendants or whoever else. Um, I, you know, it's not on, on the list of things that bother me about Dr. Fauci. It's, it's, you know, it's the least personally offensive because it's not. It, again, it just has to do with who's willing. They're willing to pay him money. They're willing to pay him money. Um, you know, the issue is what he presided over, um, including you know whether he presided over he, him being the foremost advocate of research done, that was done by groups like Eco Health Alliance, which have now been criticized by the federal government. Uh, the, the federal government criticized both EcoHealth Alliance in that uh, Inspector General report we talked about last week. They criticized both EcoHealth Alliance and actually Fauci's own agency for not having exercised the right level of scrutiny of high-risk experiments, high-risk experiments that were going on in, in Wuhan, in foreign countries, uh, not under our control, in, in labs that do not properly follow safety protocols. And, you know, Dr. Fauci, when he was deposed and a few weeks, a few months ago and asked about uh, whether there were exceptions granted for gain-of-function research, he says he thinks so, but he didn't quite remember signing off on one specifically. He doesn't know if that paper crossed his desk. That's the really damning stuff, I think, when it, when it comes to the, this man, you know, not uh, that he's going <laughs> to give a, give a really rousing 45-minute speech and make $100,000. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible that you could do that, but if people are willing to pay, I guess so be it. 
I what I want is for people in our class to just stop for a minute and think about what this looks like to a small business owner whose uh, small business failed because of Dr. Fauci's, you know, the lockdowns that he recommended and that were imposed at his behest, right? I want people in our class, you know, the laptop cast to stop and think what this looks like to, you know, no working class Americans made, got rich over the pandemic, right? Like there was no upward mobility during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. There was a sort of retrenchment of classes. And to the extent that he represents that, you know, I, I just want us to stop and think about what that looks like to Americans who are not us, who don't have our privileges, right? Um, who were not able to see, you know, their their you know home values, you know, quadruple during the pandemic, and we're not able to see their children suddenly, um, you know, miles ahead of public school kids, even you know, even though they already were. Uh, we'll talk about that in my radar, but I, I, I think that um, that kind of compassion is extremely important because that is what's going to stop this from happening again in the future. And the problem is, is that nobody who was in charge of making policy, certainly under President Biden, had those Americans at the forefront of their minds when they were thinking about who they were protecting. They were protecting the protected. They were comforting the comfortable. Um, so, I, and I think that this is very emblematic of that. Is this much worse than anybody else in that, you know, in the millionaire class? Probably not. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Please stay with us. Should you take any blame for inflation? Should you take any blame for inflation? No. Why not? Because it was already there when I got here, man. Remember what the economy was like when I got here? Thank you. That was President Biden responding to a reporter at a town hall asking him if he takes any blame for inflation. According to a new Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs research poll, 37 percent of Democrats say they want Biden to seek a second term, which is down from 52 percent in the weeks before last year's midterm elections. So first, I think we should fact check Biden's claim there that uh, he, he bears no blame for inflation. Uh, his rescue plan, I mean, you can say it was necessary, that it had good effects. I'm not sure I would make those claims, but a lot of people would make those claims. But I think it's pretty incontrovertible that it contributed to raising inflation, that spending that massive amount of money uh, it, it was partly responsible for inflation. Of course, you know, spending tons of money is not unique to Biden. Trump did it as well, as did all previous presidents. Again, maybe you can argue, if you want to argue, that it was necessary given the unprecedented COVID pandemic, but it definitely had something to do with inflation. So for him to say that, oh, all the inflation was there before I took off, I mean, that's not even true. Like, inflation was rising while he's in office. So anyway, that doesn't make any sense, but... Well, I mean, a little bit to disagree with you, Robbie. Uh, uh, To me, the problem was not that the money was given to families who, you know, we could argue about whether or not they needed it. It was that money was given to families at a time when the goods that they may have used that money to buy were not in the marketplace, right? Too much money chasing too few goods, right? And that was because of supply chain issues, which were the result of the pandemic. And, you know, I I do have to give President Biden credit. The CHIPS Act, for example, um, was directly designed to prevent future generations from having to deal with supply chain issues like the ones we have been dealing with all along throughout the pandemic. So, you know, I, I, I think he deserves a little bit more credit. 
you know, we had a, a jobs report come out last week, 517,000 new jobs added last month, which was three times what Wall Street was predicting. You know, that how come he doesn't get any credit for that, right? If he's responsible for inflation, well, then he's responsible for these jobs as well. Um, so I, I think on that front, it's not so much the money, it's that the money was given at a time when the, there were too few goods available of the of the sort that these families might have spent this money on. Um, I will say, I, I, I also think, you know, to, for these, for Democratic voters to be less inclined to support him for a 2024 run after his astonishing performance and success during the midterms. I, I think that's so ungrateful. I mean, he's done a lot of things I don't necessarily support. I don't think that are not, you know, things that I think are important. He's done a lot of things that I think are very bad. But if you're a Democratic voter, right, he, he tried to push through student loan forgiveness. He's abandoned policing the border, which these are all things, you know, Democrats are supposed to support. The economy is getting better slowly but surely. Lots of jobs. You know, it seems to me a little bit... Um, like, what exactly is their, is their complaint? Is it, it must be that they don't think he's likely to succeed against a potential uh, Republican candidate. I mean, that must be it. Do you agree with me? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, I, I've said this so many times. The goal to, of, of replacing Biden, replacing him with who? Everyone else in the Democratic side is less popular than Biden. You're right that even though I, I tremendously disagree with these policies, Biden somewhat unexpectedly or somewhat contrary to expectations, it's certainly conservative expectations, but I think mainstream expectations as well, had a pretty stunningly uh, positive uh, midterm performance, you know, just just back last November. So to turn around and say, we want to dump him in favor of someone else, again, again, who? There isn't that figure. There's no one, like it or not, there's no one more popular on the, on the Democratic side than Joe Biden himself. So I don't know what these poll respondents are necessarily thinking. Maybe it's just kind of a wishful thinking. Like, ideally, we would have someone who's younger than Joe Biden and a bit more vigorous and, and better at, at responding to things. Maybe Democratic voters wish he would more prior—or the people, at least in this poll, wish he would prioritize even more. Um, I, maybe it's sort of cultural or social. You know, he's not, he's not liberal or progressive enough in terms of woke-type things for, uh, you know, for educated, elite Democratic voters, I, I would— I, I would understand their frustration there. You know, the kind of people who prefer um, Elizabeth Warren or, or, or you know, the, the Gillibrand or something like that. I, I could see them wanting someone other than Biden, but that's very short-sighted thinking because I don't think a figure like that would have nearly the same likelihood of, of Joe Biden to be reelected. I mean, it's going to be a it's going to be a tough battle depending on who the Republican challenger is, right? If, I mean, I think it'll be a tough battle regardless. If it's Trump again, probably that's probably Biden's preferred matchup, to be frank, because he beat him once. But we don't know if that's going to be the case. I think also uh, President Biden very cleverly has moved the first primary state from right New Hampshire, Iowa, all these places where people like Bernie Sanders, where progressives have you know a real foothold, right? Because these are sort of white, you know, the Democratic populations there are overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly progressive. He very cleverly has moved it to South Carolina, where he is extremely popular, and we know that Black voters are much more moderate, much less likely to take a chance on somebody with progressive policies. Um, we can debate why that is. But, you know, so he's sort of, in a way, uh, that was a very clever move. I, I think, you know, 
that doesn't just get rid of, you know, a, a compelling challenge from someone like Senator Sanders. I mean, Pete Buttigieg was extremely unpopular with black voters, could really not gain any traction with them. You know, that so, so, so a lot of people who you would have thought of as potential up and coming characters, candidates, um, you know, in the old regime, it's, it's, it, it, this is going to have a huge impact on the early stages of the Democratic primary. I mean, I think in a very positive way, I think black voters, you know, Democrats used to understand these people as their base. They no longer do. They've leaned in too heavily, I think, on college educated voters. So this really has shifted the, that sort of center of gravity back to where it should be. And but that's going to help President Biden a lot. And it's going to help him in selling his candidacy because other people, I mean, Governor, you know, Governor Newsom, is he going to be compelling to black voters in South Carolina? It's, it's hard to imagine, right? After, and after the Iowa caucus embarrassed itself last time around with the, you know, the, do you remember the tabulation errors and, you know, not actually knowing who'd want, having to wait to report your, like, the, the total from your precinct, and it was, it was just, like, such a disaster. I, I can understand. Um, they deserve to be punished, frankly. It was time for them to lose that, that front, uh, front of the pack status after that total debacle, even setting aside the representation issues with Iowa not being a particularly representative state, um, they, they can't. <laughs> the, the whole, I think the whole Democratic Party was embarrassed um, by that performance. But you're absolutely right that it does play to Joe Biden's race. But look, I don't, I think he's going to run for re-election. I don't think he's going to face any serious challenge whatsoever. Maybe some, there will be a, a, a token um, uh, mm. Democratic Socialist Bernie type Opposition. I, I, I don't think Bernie will do that, but remains to be seen. But someone in that mold, perhaps maybe someone outside the political system. You know, we've interviewed Marianne Williamson uh, on the show repeatedly. Maybe someone like her. But I, I don't think Joe Biden is going to face. A, I think he will run for re-election. He will not face serious resistance um, within the party because ultimately the, the the party apparatus knows that he's their best chance to retain control of the White House. So they'd have to contend with Kamala Harris, who is much, much less popular than Joe Biden, who is, you know, divisive and, and et cetera, which that's going to be a problem they're going to have to contend with eventually. But they don't, they don't have to contend with it uh, in 2024. They can just stick with Joe Biden. And, I, and he's going to seek it because the reality is people just don't no, like, no one in our political system wants to give up power. You have people in their 80s and 90s still seeking re-election, still seeking office. It's a gerontocracy. We're absolutely governed by, by historically <laughs> unprecedented, unprecedentedly elderly Americans. And, and Joe Biden is, is one of many in that position. He's not—I I don't see any reason why he would, uh, why we, he would give up the throne now when it's likely to be his again. It, it, it's, it's, it's not for, for certain. It's going to be a battle. But, you know, he's got a coin flips chance of being president, again, of Democrats still controlling the White House. So they're going to take that. They're going to take those odds. There's no way they don't. They'd be idiots not to. Yeah, I mean, the Democratic bench does seem quite narrow. And just adding support to this idea that moving the first primary to South Carolina was part of a kind of an almost unspoken pledge that he plans to run and plans to win. Um, um, uh, House Democrat Jim Clyburn, in an extensive interview, um, when he was asked about this, he said, well, you know, he never talked to me about it, right? Which is sort of, you would think he would be the first person you would approach, right, to talk to about this. Um, and, and he, you know, this was not a conversation that President Biden had with him. It was sort of a decision he made on his own. So, um, you know, take that as you will, as a sign of what you will. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we will be back in just a minute. More Rising. Stay tuned.
Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had this to say regarding the removal of Representative Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee last week. As also as a fellow New Yorker, I think one of the things that we should talk about here is also one of the disgusting legacies after 9-11 has been the targeting and racism against Muslim Americans throughout the United States of America. And this is an extension of that legacy. Consistency, there is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an abdic a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who, have, who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology when my life was threatened. Thank you. Omar was removed over past comments she made regarding Israel, the true criticism from, from Republicans and also from some Democrats. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib also gave her own remarks on the affair and appeared to break down in tears. Censor Congresswoman Omar in the same week, they introduced a bill to ban federal employees from engaging in censorship. Where are the free speech warriors today? The hypocrisy is obvious to the American people. You are showing who you all are, really. The gentlewoman's time has expired. Omar will not be silenced. The gentlewoman's time to has expired. Omar, the I gentlewoman's am so time sorry, has expired. That our country is failing you today through this chamber. You the, belong The gentlewoman is no longer recognized, and the, the gentleman from Mississippi is recognized. So this was uh, Representative Omar, uh, you know, being taken off this committee. Uh, I, I, now, it's, I think it's important to point out that she was not the only one. You know, Eric Swalwell lost his committee assignment. Adam Schiff lost his committee assignment. Um, I think there was greater justification for b both of those, you know, Adam Schiff being so so involved in, again, what I described in my radar as really discredited uh, ideas about Russiagate. Um, Eric Swalwell had his connection to the uh, alleged Chinese um, spy. In Ilan Omar's case, you know, she said things she's apologized for that I think were offensive and people were correct to be to, to find them offensive. Um, I, I actually appreciate that Ilan Omar, Mar, uh, unlike many Democrats, has spoken up about the wep exactly this important issue, the weaponization of the federal government against um, speech rights, uh, the FBI, et cetera. And uh, I think maybe we would have actually benefited from her perspective, given that she seems to share some Republican concerns. So I, I don't, uh, I don't agree with this decision. That said, I don't think it was an example of persecution against. Uh, a Muslim or a minority or a woman so much as kind of political payback for exactly the things Democrats had, had done. Now, I, I, again, in her case, I don't think I agree with it, whereas I, in the other two cases, I think it's, it's perfectly justifiable. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't think this—what they're, they're criticizing it on grounds, I don't think that's what it was about. What's your take, Bacha? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Congresswoman Ilhan Omar suffers from the same problem that, you know, Trump and many others in this era do, which is she has some really good ideas and then has an inability to stay off social media and just do the work 
of implementing those ideas. And unfortunately, if you're a progressive, if you're in that space, um, the more extreme you are on certain issues, the more socially you get rewarded, certainly on social media. Um, and so, and of course, that's true on, on the right as well. Um, now, I will say her comments, they were not actually about Israel. They were about Jewish Americans, which is very significantly different. I think her, her criticism of Israel, sometimes, you know, I agree with it. Sometimes I don't agree with it. But the, um, the thing that she was that they sort of tried to have this resolution against was for anti-Semitic comments against American Jews specifically. Um, and the comparison that AOC made to Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think is a little unfair. And I'll tell you why, Robbie. You know, it was reported in the media that Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about Jewish space lasers, but she never used the word Jewish. She used the word Rothschild. And, you know, I know a lot of people it turns out, who are not at all aware that the Rothschilds are Jewish, who are not at all aware that George Soros is Jewish, certainly it's not the first thing that comes to mind, because America is a fundamentally not anti-Semitic country. It's really one of the most, you know, the country that has been the best to the Jews in our entire history, but also remains fundamentally not anti-Semitic. And so, you know, when you're in Hungary and you say the word Rothschild, you say George Soros, there's just, you know, centuries of anti-Semitic sentiment that's like baked into like the soil that is very, it's, it's a synonym for Jews. That is simply not the case in America. I have met a lot of people who, as Marjorie Taylor Greene herself said, she had no idea that they were Jewish. And the media kept portraying it in quotes as though she had said Jewish space laser. So I think that that comparison is, is unfair. And, you know, in response to being called out for that, she spent a week, you know, in Israel, she went to Yad Vashem. She really did try her best to educate herself. So the response has been very different. And so I think that that comparison is not fair. But I, I, I agree with you, Robbie. Well, but didn't, say, didn't Omar um, say, she said as well, or she said recently that she, the, the all about the Benjamins um, comment that she didn't know the anti-Semitic history there. So it's, it, I think it's uh, similar. Both are saying, both MTG and uh, Omar saying that the thing they said they didn't know, it had a specifically anti-Semitic context. And I guess what I would say to that is, okay, fine. So then they were just like, not well-informed remarks, which I, which is fine for most people. Like, you know, Gina Carano shared uh, that that was the woman. Uh, she was on uh, The Mandalorian, and she got fired by Disney for a couple things. But she shared some image of like you know world elites um, controlling people, and it, it it has a specific potential anti-Semitic context. But I think most people, including her, would have no idea what that was. So I think that's fine for her. I guess for the people we elect to Congress. I would expect I would hold you to like a higher bar of just knowing things. Like if your excuse is, "Oh, I I was ignorant about that," I don't know. Maybe maybe you don't belong in Congress ultimately. Like we that, like it, it, like I don't think you should be fired from your job. I don't think you should be unpersoned or canceled. But it's okay. Isn't it okay to have standards for like the people who represented us in Congress? I don't know. Right. I mean, I will say I do think there's a difference between, you know, saying something about someone and not knowing they're Jewish and then saying, you know, basically implying Jews do things because they're money hungry and not knowing that that's offensive. Right. Like those are very different things. Right. She said it's all about the Benjamins, meaning they do this because they love money and then said, I didn't realize that was a trope, meaning I didn't realize it was offensive to imply that. So those are very different. But at the end of the day, I agree with you, Robbie. I think that what she her, you know, quote unquote, speech crimes, whatever they may be, are are very different from, you know, Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff, who really, you know, what they did really went beyond simply their opinions, whatever, however offensive they may be. And so it really and I think it, it, it would have been to the Republicans credit 
to to make that distinction. So mm-hmm. it was very clear that this was not personal. This was not right. Um, you know, just about revenge, right? Because now by including her, they really open themselves up to that criticism. What was AOC talking about with with respect to the th- the threat against her life from a fellow? Was so that, I think she was talking about video? Paul Gosar, yeah, the, the video, Paul Gosar the animated video, video yes, yeah. which I mean, yeah, which was very bad. But he was, and he was punished for that, wasn't he? I thought he was punished. And they were talking. He was punished amicably. by the Democrats, Robbie. Yes, what? they were. But he he, yeah. so he was taken off his committee assignments by the Democrats, which this is sort of viewed very yeah. much. And, you know, even admitted uh, Byron Donalds admitted that this was an act of revenge, which I mean, I'm not sure it's inappropriate to take revenge, you know, on, you know, this mm-hmm. unprecedented move that Nancy Pelosi took, which was to punish people from the other party by removing them from their committee seats. seats. Yeah. Look, I, I take her point that, uh, you know, she's the subject of a lot of negative press coverage from the right. I'm sure it often gets heated. I'm, you know, I'm sure she, like everyone else in public life, probably you, probably me sometimes, I'm sure her at a you know, much greater scale, obviously. But the reality is, if you're in public life, you, know, you get a lot of criticism. Sometimes it's nasty, sometimes it's unpleasant, sometimes it's vaguely threatening, sometimes it's actually threatening. Um, usually it does not reflect an actual threat to your life. You know, you can 99% of the nasty comments you get, you can totally disregard and know that <laughs> there's not going to be any follow through on it. But I appreciate that she, you know, wants the rhetoric toned down. I, I'm not sure, you know, you know, accusing Republicans of, or like everyone of being, uh, that she disagrees with here, being like racist and sexist and anti-Muslim or, and, and there was a lot of anti-Muslim, you know, fervor after 9-11. There were like bad policy decisions made. I think to equate this with that is is frankly kind of, in, insulting to the people who were harmed by like the Patriot Act and the no-fly list and the you know the the the, the ground ground zero all that kind of stuff. I, like this is clearly not in keeping with that in my view. But obviously people can reach different conclusions if they like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think uh, you know what was very interesting to me was. I feel like two years ago, three years ago, um, you know, Representative AOC and Representative Talib saying that this is about racism would have had like a real impact. You know, everybody that narrative would have been sort of nonstop in the mainstream leftist media. But now it sort of falls a little it seems a bit performative. Right there. These speeches and they were, you know, that that performativity, I think, stems from the fact that the, the, the public conversation has moved on. We're no longer in this sort of the fervor of the moral panic around race that we were in two years ago, three years ago, you know, I think it's become clear that, you know, most black Americans don't see race the way that, um, you know, white leftist progressives do. And that this, you know, the, the squad really is sort of much more the patron saints of this sort of, you know, elite college educated set more than the sort of the populations that they claim to be representing. And so to me, these sort of, even though I agree with you and I agree with them that, you know, may, you know, I don't think that Elon Omar should have been taken off her committee assignments at the same time, their attempt to turn to race Socialize that to me seems to sort of fall a little bit flat, and I take comfort in that. Mm. Absolutely. All right, we'll have more rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Embattled Congressman George Santos is in more hot water. Derek Myers, a former aide to the congressman, accused Santos of sexual harassment. Myers sent a letter to the House Ethics Committee on Friday detailing the alleged harassment, which included Santos putting his hand on Myers' leg and even asking if he has a grinder profile, a dating app for the LGBT community. 
In the letter, the prospective aide also asked for the committee to investigate Santos for putting him to work as a volunteer, which is prohibited under ethics rules. Meyer said that on January 23rd, he received an offer to work as a legislative correspondent and staff assistant in the D.C. office, but that offer was rescinded by February 1st. We did reach out to Congressman, the congressman's office for comment, but have not uh, heard back. Look, George, you know, there is uh, there's plenty already for which George Santos should resign over with respect to the misrepresentations of his background. Um, this specific one, look, actually the person who's accusing him is quite sus, I would say. Um, I understand why Santos didn't want to give him a full job. He actually has a history of, like, recording people. There, there's a specific... It, it, he, he records people thing with him. And in fact, he recorded some of his conversations with Santos. He did play that. I don't think Santos comes off necessarily good in that recording. He's like obsessed with the Don Lemon is texting him. It's, I, I think Santos actually enjoys some of the circus, to be frank. But look, as for the accusation that, the, the, that he sexually harassed or sexually assaulted, I suppose, that this man, I, 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 I don't know. I, I mean, he deserves due process, and I wouldn't, even though George Santos is not a particularly credible uh, figure, I actually don't think this aide is a very credible character either, and I, I wouldn't, like, in a vacuum do anything with this. But what is your view of it? Right. So um, I said he was a former aide. I, I believe he was a prospective aide. Right. He was looking for a job and didn't get that job. And, you know, in that a disgruntled person see seeking a, a job opportunity, um, you know, that always complicates the situation. Um, and I agree with you. There's something about, I mean, the idea that given the situation he's in right now, that George Santos would do something like this, given the scrutiny he's facing, seems to me to be um, reason again to be, you know, to, 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 you know, we could hear him out. Right. Um, but, um, I, I agree with you. There's something about this that is sort of, um, doesn't quite, doesn't quite meet the smell test, if you will. Although of course we'll wait and see, see what else comes out. Um, we know that, um, Santos's troubles are still piling up. The FBI, FBI is now getting involved. According to the AP, the agency is investigating his fundraiser for a veteran's sick dog. Robbie, this story made me so angry. Last month, a military veteran alleged Santos launched a GoFundMe to help raise money for his ailing dog. And he sort of relied on this dog very much for his mental health. You know, he was very depressed, suicidal even. And Santos raised all of this money, thousands of for a surgery that would have potentially helped this dog. And then Santos allegedly, although he was at the time going by the name of Anthony DeValder, vanished allegedly with the $3,000 that he had raised for this dog, and the dog died. Mm. Well, Santos is refusing to resign from Congress, but he did step down from his committee assignments. He released a statement last week saying, quote, with the ongoing attention surrounding both my personal and campaign financial investigations, I have submitted a request to the speaker that I be temporarily recused from these assignments until I am cleared. You know, you had the whole, I, I was like, I don't care about this. It's just funny given the Republican Party's like sudden commitment to fighting drag queens that, that he did that photo did appear of him dressed in drag he said well I never was a drag queen and I think he was making a technical distinction that he like did not work as a drag queen even though he was clearly that was him in those photos dressed in drag which I don't care about at all but it's just kind of hilarious given the Republican Party seems very alarmed about uh, about that issue at the moment. Uh, look, I don't think there's any, re given the numerous investigations of him, the, the accusations of financial improprieties, the, the 
the proven fact that he really misrepresented his background, it does not seem like he should still be in Congress. However, the seat he holds is competitive, right? So the Republicans can't really afford to lose it. So I don't foresee them actually telling him to resign or him actually resigning because there are actually some political stakes uh, going on here, which is uh, which so. That, that is what it is. I, I, I don't know what else there's to say about it. But now the media is obsessed with George Santos, the mainstream media. They, you know, they, they cover him. They cover his antics daily over and over and over again, which I sort of get because like this is the story is it's interesting. It's it's funny. It has, you know, color. It has color to it. Uh, is it the most important story being told in the United States right now? I don't think so. Are there there are things that voters and viewers and readers care about a whole lot more than everything having to do with George Santos's personal life? I suspect so, and and all in, including the other lies or the, the the promises not being delivered on by representatives in Congress and in the White House and in other branches of government. You know, it's not it's actually not novel at all in my view that that he is a fraudulent person in Congress because Congress is full of, of fraudulent people, of, of people who have you know, leveraged their power and their networks and their insider knowledge to enrich themselves financially, you know, the revolving door when they leave and go back in for the defense industry, the pharmaceuticals industry, everything. I think that's a scandal and that is something the American people are really worked up about. Are they really worked up about George Santos's biography? I'm less sure, although Again, it, yes, it's a problem, and no, he should not be in Congress. <laughs> yeah, I was very disappointed that Kevin McCarthy uh, gave him uh, committee assignments. I thought that he should have sort of said, look, we're not going to eject him from Congress. That would be undemocratic, but we're going to recognize the severity of what he's being accused of. That was very disappointing. We are seeing now um, polling coming out of his district. Over you know, 75% of his constituents want him to step down. So, you know, that pressure is going to keep increasing and we'll see we'll see how this plays out. Um, that story about the dog, though, Robbie, I mean, that's really bad. I think, I'm you know, also a dog I, I, person. I have two little dogs. Horrible, horrible. Yeah, you, mis you mistreat uh, you know, this, this a dog. You're oh, dead to me. God. Right. And it's, you know, I, I think I was sort of f trying to find ways to excuse the other stuff. You know, oh, he had status anxiety. He had to lie about this. He had to lie about that. And then when I heard the dog story a couple of weeks ago, I was like, no more, George Santos, no more. <laughs> because yeah. that really speaks to character, I think, in a way that the others maybe, you know, you could have found found excuses for. Um, so I, I, yeah, we'll see what happens with him. Mm. Uh, and we should uh, we should note that he uh, George Santos denied uh, you know many of the the accusations yeah. um, against him while seeming to acknowledge in some of his interviews that you know he had, may have misrepresented aspects of his uh, biography. So we'll see we'll see if he goes anywhere. But uh, his constituents might just have to wait until the next time he's <laughs> up for up for election. So we will continue to follow that, and we'll have more rising right after this. It's become very predictable now. So, you know, now that the documentary series is out and we are seeing the same kind of um, backlash being ginned up, uh, my response to it is we've already been there. What else, what else can you possibly <laughs> say that hasn't been said? But I, I think there's something um, much more central happening, which is that 
the history of black Americans is so inconvenient to the, mer- the narrative of America that there are you know, powerful interests that haven't ever wanted us to grapple truthfully. That's why we have uh, Governor DeSantis banning AP African American studies um, in Florida. That's why we have all these so-called anti-critical race theory laws that are trying to make it more difficult to teach about racism and to teach about um, what black Americans have experienced. Because if you acknowledge that, then you have to acknowledge that we were founded on these great ideals, but we have not lived up to them. So to me, the backlash is a sign of the impact. The backlash is a sign um, you know, of, of who doesn't want us to be grapple honestly with our history. That was the 1619 Project's Nicole Hannah-Jones weighing in on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' move to ban AP African American Studies in the state. Um, Bacha, what's your reaction to those comments? So it's so interesting because everything she accused DeSantis of trying to erase is exactly his position. And what I mean by that is, you know, she's saying black history is American history. That was exactly what Governor DeSantis said in saying he didn't approve of this AP class. He said, because, first of all, it's already mandated by Florida state law that regular history classes must include the teaching of racism and the teaching of slavery, right? So from his point of view, he's making the same case that she claims to be making against him. You know, what he's banning is not, you know, black history. He's not banning the teaching of racism. He's banning woke versions of that, that do not reflect how most black Americans see themselves in their history and come from a very specific academic point of view in which black history is taught, you know, with the inclusion of, for example, queer black voices, in which reparations are taught as from only one point of view, erasing the very, uh, wonderful, luminous black voices that are against um, reparations. Thomas Sowell, Glenn Lowry, for example, these are the things that were included in the AP's revision. So in the revision, they took out the queer black voices section and they included a section on black conservatives as well. Um, So it's just, it's so funny to me that she's criticizing him for saying you know, that, that the things that she is saying should be said that have been erased are actually the very things that Ron DeSantis was trying to implement in his revision of that AP class. Right. I mean, the, the very thing that Ron DeSantis and others wanted to keep out of the instruction was a Nicole Hannah-Jones sort of philosophy, you know, the, the 1619 project, which she spearheaded, look, has, has been criticized. I've criticized it, but m- mainstream historians have criticized it. There were oversights and mistakes made in it. It didn't, uh, her, her assertion or the project's assertion that, uh, that the preservation of slavery was one of the major causes of the American uh, Revolutionary War, one of the main reasons the colonists wanted to rebel was to preserve slavery, is just not is not accurate, is not historically accurate. The fact-checkers who fact-check the project called out errors, and they were they were ignored. Fact-checkers for the project have come out and said, we had concerns about this, we were not listened to. Um, so I think there's a lot you can criticize Nicole Hannah-Jones for. Um, I think there's a lot, uh, and, and, you know, to the extent that her philosophy extends into what we're talking about here. I will, all of that aside, so the, the ban is a little, is, interesting language, right, because what DeSantis said was that he, 
you had he wanted the AP to to change the review the curriculum, make changes. They did that, and now it's being rolled out. I don't I don't feel very positively about like the governor of the state being the person who gets to say exactly what the curriculum should necessarily be. Up to me, I would have just let if a if a school wants to use this curriculum, use it. If they don't want to use it, don't use it. Like you said, a lot of schools, I would presume most schools, frankly, uh, probably do a good job. If they're doing a good job at all of teaching history, they're teaching about the Civil War and about segregation. I mean, that is the Civil War is a major, and slavery is a massive component of American high school instruction in American history. Um, it, it, there is a there's Black History Month, which is talked about in in many, if not most, schools. So I, like you, I think I, I reject the notion that like this that, that the true the the reality of racism in this country is not being acknowledged. It should be acknowledged. It absolutely is accurate that um, that what she said in, in that in that interview that um, that America's Founding ideals were not lived up to for black Americans for a very long time. That is a component of history instruction, and it is right to be a component of history instruction. You don't need anything new or different to say that. That is already being taught. If there are schools where it's not being taught, it should be. That's that's it's wrong to have that be an oversight. I just I just don't think it's accurate to say that there's a, that significantly that like a lot of schools are not educating students about the horrors of slavery or the re or the reality of the civil war like i just that's just not it's not taking place now again i would i would say schools use whatever curricula, uh, curriculum you want i would leave these choices to parents more so if you know if a parent wants to enroll their kid in this school or have them take this course that's fine they prefer a, a different one that's fine too rather than have like the governor of the state say okay everyone has to learn exactly these things and study exactly this list of people that seems limiting to me that wouldn't be my preferred approach and i think it 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 risks uh, giving the appearance of some hypocrisy on freedom of speech or you know diversity of thought uh, uh, categories of thinking. Well, on the other hand, though, Robbie, somebody has to decide what public school kids are going to be taught. And absent a robust uh, uh, point of view from an executive, that often gets left to individual teachers, um, many of whom, not most, but many of whom do come out of this kind of much more woke point of view, um, which you learn if you get a graduate degree. Um, so I, 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 I think that rubs me the wrong, does not rub me the wrong way in the same way that it does you. Someone has to make that decision. If Governor DeSantis feels strongly about it, I, I think there's a way of seeing this, that he's standing up for working class kids who don't get the choice to go to, to private schools, who are stuck with whatever's being taught in the public schools. And for him to say, I, you know, this is going to be an issue that I feel strongly about, um, I, I think that's 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 very appropriate so that well, it doesn't well, get universal left school to choice teachers. would be my answer. I would I would let <laughs> working class kids go to whatever. I don't think you should have to go to the school that you happen to reside in the air, that, that, that your zip code is like your debt, your education destiny makes absolutely no sense. Whatever amount of money the state or the, or the municipality is spending on you, the per-pupil spending, I would just give that to the parents and say, arrange whatever education for your kid you want. If that's the public school education, if you're really passionate about public education because you're a, you're a woke liberal and you like the curriculum there, good, go to that one. If you want to go to a private school, fine by me. You want to go to a Catholic school, that's how I was educated. I thought it was great. You can do that. If you want to go to an artsy school, that's 
fine if you want to be homeschooled or you want to have some combination thereof where you, it's a community type thing. You and your neighbors are educated some days by, by a parent in the school group. That's fine. And then some days you go, like, whatever you, you it, I think parents will make these choices better than vast clumsy bureaucracies or political figures or, or whoever. I would just, I would, I would devolve more choice to to the parents themselves to figure this out and I'm, the the money right now being invested in the public education system it should just go to them I'm, I'm sure Florida uh, Governor Ron DeSantis agrees with you and that that's coming down the pike. Um, I hope so. I will just make one more point, which is that um, Nicole Hannah-Jones engaged in a classic um, Mott-Bailey fallacy. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, but the Mott-Bailey fallacy is when you act like you're defending a position that's very easy to defend in the name of defending a position that's very hard to defend. She, there was a slippage there where she said he's banning black history and banning critical race theory, and both of these things are erasing black Americans. And in so doing, what she, she revealed is that move that they do often on the progressive left where they say, there's no critical race theory in schools. And if you point out that there is, they say, well, nobody's defending that, but they are, because he did ban critical race theory because it does have a very radical activist point of view on race and on history. Um, but then, you know, because they don't want to defend critical race theory, they then accuse him of banning just regular history, which of course he did not do. He, mm -hmm. he banned, or he, as you pointed out, Robbie, he asked for a revision to an AP course called African American Studies, which is what goes way beyond just history, which is mandated in schools already and brings in that version anyway, brought a lot of critical race theory to the table. Right, right. Which was not, it was not a history class. Because <laughs> I agree with the, with the idea that African-American history is American history and the contributions Boy. of African-Americans to our culture and our history should be taught and should be celebrated and, and is. And we should absolutely discuss ways to make it even more enriching and more interesting. And, and, and you know, it doesn't have to always be taught the same way. But, uh, you know, these, these massive wars over exactly what, you know, everyone is going to learn in the public education system. I don't it, people are just going to get really burned out from having this, I think, one-size-fits-all approach. But uh, we'll have to see. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, Brianna Joy Gray will be back with me at the desk. It's been wonderful to see you, Batya. Have a great week, as always. You too. I'll be watching tomorrow. Thank you. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere that you can listen to podcasts. And I will see you back here tomorrow. It's going to be an exciting show. Take care.